Okay, so I had just moved to Japan, the land of the rising sun. I was going to school, everything was cool. And me and my new buddies, Chris and Ray, we decided to go for a hike in the Mystic Mountains. So we're up in the woods, tromping around, getting hot. And I'm like, who's got the snacks? Yo, I'm hungry. Where are the drinks? And everybody starts looking at everybody else real stupid. Oh, I thought that's what you were carrying. Wasn't that you carrying that? And everyone's backpack is full of papers and sand and nonsense. And I'm really annoyed because... I'm supposed to be the talker, not the snack carrier, trip planner person. And I'm like, for real? Nobody brought anything? So we got to keep trekking up the stream. No nourishment and it's hot. And we've been going up the mountain for hours. And I'm like, look, we got to turn back around. This is horrible. I need some refreshment. And who carries economic textbooks up a mountain anyway? And then something miraculous happens. A melon. Perfectly round, delicious, pale green comes bobbing down the stream towards us. What have we here? Chris jumps in the water, fishes it out, and right as he's coming back to shore, three beautiful, crisp apples follow the melon. They're glistening in the noonday sun. Yeah! An orange. Whoa! And then, a smoked sausage. And then, and then, Three, four, five bottles of Kiran Ichiban beer. There in the cold water, demanding we pluck them out. Get those, get those right there. And I'm getting ready, right? It's picnic time. I clear out the space, put my little jacket down. Lunch is served, y'all. I got a bottle opener and I hear Chris shouting, dessert, there's dessert in the water, all right. I bow my head in thanks to the universe. All that clean living finally paid off. And then... I hear it gone. I hear it again. And four Shinto priests, covered in white robes, break through the forest path, followed by 15 or 20 lay people. I'm sitting there with my mouth stuffed full of smoked sausage and two halves of the melon sitting in my lap. Chris is holding a beer in each hand. Ray is handing out orange slices and their look of friendly greeting turns to instant fury. And then I know, I know everything. There was a ceremony higher up the trail. Various items were placed in the river as an offering to the god of the mountain, the god of the mountain, not for idiot foreigners. We had done a very, very bad thing. I wiped the crumbs from my mouth and started trying to rewrap the smoked sausage Chris and Ray, they're busy trying to place half-drank bottles of beer back into the water. The scowls are growing deeper and deeper. We place the rest of the tainted bounty gently, gently in the stream and bow deeply at the priest. Our heads almost touch the ground. And then we run back down the mountain as fast as we can. Today, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Lost in Translation. Stories about those times when what you meant to say is not what they heard. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, on the Snap Judgment program, we're going riding. Get that seatbelt on tight. I'll be your conductor for today's journey. We've got quite a trip in store. We're going to China, India, Moldova, and the strange and mysterious land of Los Angeles. We're going to kick off our travels in a place that no longer exists. It comes from one of our storytelling radio brethren from across the pond in the Netherlands, Jonathan Gruber. You see, Jonathan is one of those guys. Everywhere he goes, everywhere he has ever been, People just have to talk to him. Snap judgment. In April of 1996, I went to Belgrade, the capital of Serbia. The war in Bosnia had only just come to an end, and my wife, Dragana, who is from Bosnia, went to see her family there for the first time in four years. 
And the atmosphere in Belgrade itself was charged. Slobodan Milosevic was still in power, the old Yugoslavia was dead, and war was in the air. And there I was, a tourist in a city on the edge of an abyss. Dragana's two cousins, Sramika and Goza, decided that I should see something of their city. So off we went to what they claimed was the largest Orthodox church in the Balkans. This city had once been rich, but now it was poor, desperate, slightly beaten, and it seemed to me resigned to more beatings. The people looked busy. They went to work. They went to cafes, but they also looked... They looked lost. And there it was, Saint Sava. It's heaving domes, not really elegant, just very, very big. And it looked closed. I mean, could we go in? We found an open gate and walked to the little vicary next to the church. And there was a painfully thin young man of about 25. He was sitting, reading a newspaper, and his white shirt was transparent with sweat. He said his name was Slobo, and Goza and Svermika told Slobo I was a visiting American and that we wanted a tour of the church. Slobo said he spoke English and unsmilingly led us inside for what was a big surprise. This, the largest and most magnificent Orthodox church in the Balkans, was an empty shell. It seems that they've been trying to finish the church for the last 80 years or so, but every time they were just about to start up, war would break out and they'd have to stop. Slobo robotically led us through the building, and then he led us out. And as we passed the vicary, he turned and strangely dropped his formality. He said, you guys want a drink? Um, sure. We sat at the table of a large room and were given tiny glasses of powerful plum brandy, Slivovitz, and Slobo looked at me and asked, Do you play the piano? No, sorry. Well, I do, he said. And he walked over to the upright piano next to the table. And then he started to play. The music was both joyous and sad. And my wife and cousin started singing along with Slobo, word for word. And then he said... Do you know this song from the mountains of Macedonia? And they did, and they sang, and they drank, and off came Slobo's jacket. And then he said, Do you know this old Bosnian drinking song? And they did, and they drank, and they stood on their chairs with their arms in the air, and off came Slobo's tie. And they kept on singing and dancing and drinking and laughing, and then Slobo stopped playing. He twisted around, looked at me hard, and said, Do you know we had the best country in the world? We had freedom and money, but we didn't have to work like dogs like you in the West. We had good lives, and we destroyed it. Do you know I am not even from Belgrade? I'm from Croatia. I was here when the war started, and I got stuck. I am from Dalmatia. Do you know this old Dalmatian fisherman's song? <laughs> And he started to play. They knew the song, and they sang, and they drank until they wept. And they all wept for the country they had lost. The Croat, the Serb, and the Bosnian all wept, for they were no longer countrymen. And yet they were, at least for tonight, still bound by the memory of what was and what could have been, and by this music. They were all singing as if they were the last Yugoslavs on earth. Jonathan Gruber is the host of the brilliant Radio Netherlands show, The State We're In. If you like storytelling, and I know that you do, I know you do, Snappers, please do check it out. You can find it at TSWI.org and on our site, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman, Mark Ristich, and the Uber producer Slavic Alter Ego, Jonathan Gruber. You might even call him the Gruber Producer. 
The last time I saw those guys, they were sneaking off with a bottle somewhere singing war songs. But that's all right. Now, I promise you all a trip around the world here on Snap Judgment and a trip around the world you shall have. We go next to China, to an orphanage where a young child is just about to meet her new American mother for the very first time. When we got there, it was a cold day in January, and all the older children came rushing out to see us. They knew that we were there to do an adoption, and very few children are ever adopted, and they had practiced saying hello. They brought my child to me, my daughter Jacqueline, and she, of course, was absolutely terrified. She was four years old, and then she basically was told, these are your new parents, and get in the car with them. She was not about to do that. She planted her feet and she began to cry and make a sound, not even like a human cry. It was like listening to an animal. And all the cajoling and all the encouragement couldn't get her into the car, so we literally almost kidnapped her. We had to pick her up. My husband picked her up and kind of put her in the back seat of the car where she just laid there stiffly across my lap. And she screamed and she screamed and she screamed. Shout, 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 shout. And I kept believing, well, this will be when she gets home, when she gets to the United States, this will end. What I didn't know was that it was, this shadow would live with us every day. There was an interpreter there that was a guide for us, and she told the interpreter to explain to us that she had a baby, and she wasn't going to leave China without her baby. She called him Xiao Xiao, which is a Chinese nickname for very little. She explained that if the kids were older than three, they were given jobs. So her job, her responsibility was to care for these two little toddlers that were basically a head shorter than she was. She had potty trained them and she had would help them eat. But what she was the most proud of really was that she had protected them from bigger kids. She said she gave all her love to this little boy she had nicknamed Xiao Xiao and that she was not going to leave China without her baby. We were there for about two weeks total. And then when we came back here, within six weeks, she could speak and she could actually convey some pretty complex thoughts in full sentences. She talked about him constantly. The only way I can describe it was it was like living with a very short mother who had had a baby ripped from her arms. She never stopped talking about him. We just said to her, we can't bring him here. And of course, she couldn't understand the sophisticated system of how all the paperwork that's required and the red tape, and you can't just take a child out of there. To be honest, I never even thought about trying to bring him here. I just kept thinking that she would get over it. One of the things I can remember most vividly was the first time I took her to McDonald's. She couldn't believe that not only did you get this cool meal, but that you also got this little toy, you know, in the Happy Meal. But then I noticed every time we went there after that, she wouldn't open her Happy Meal packet. She'd hold the toy up to the light to see what it was. And then when she got home, she stuffed him in a little box. And finally I asked her what she was doing, and she said Xiao Xiao never had a little toy. There was no logic that you could give her in terms of trying to explain why he couldn't come here. She had noticed that we only had five chairs around our dining room table and that they were already full. And so she said one night, well, you know, he could just sit on my lap while we ate. And then one day she took me up and she showed me her bed and she said, you know, we wouldn't even need to get him his own bed. He could just slip right here on the other end of the bed from her. I started writing an email to a small group of friends and telling them about Jacqueline and her baby. Unbeknownst to me, and sometimes with my permission, these emails started to get forwarded to people who knew people who knew people. And then the responses started to come. I got emails from people all, literally all over the world saying my prayer group in New York is praying for Jacqueline's baby. Our Indian reservation is praying to our ancestors for Jacqueline's baby. Our synagogue has taken up this cause. Is there any news? The lady I've never met, I wouldn't recognize her if she walked into the room from Minnesota, put up all the adoption fees and said, I'll pay the fees if we could bring him here. A lady in Tennessee said, I'll buy him clothes until he's 18 years old. Someone sent a bike from Florida. And then her story got told to some powerful folks. It ended up with a United States senator who ended up cutting through red tape on the INS side of things. And then the story was taken to the Chinese officials. 
and they worked together with the United States authorities. Fifteen months after she was adopted, Jacqueline walked back into that orphanage and grabbed the hand of her baby. Today, he's her cousin. He lives 20 minutes away from us. He was adopted by my sister, and he's part of our family. The way I think about it is this. If you think about love being a a state where you can't be happy if the person that you love isn't happy, this is the way she loved that little boy. She never could rest knowing that he was still there. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Grab a tissue. Wipe your eyes. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. It just means you're a human being. Many thanks to Cindy Ciampanella for sharing her story with us. She's currently working on a new book of true stories called The Twelve Gifts of Life. We'll have a link on snapjudgment.org. Today, we're exploring stories about people trying to communicate and sometimes not getting all the way there. But we're communicating now. You understand what's at stake. Don't go anywhere. Snap Judgment, the Lost in Translation episode, will return in just a moment. Snap Judgment, the Lost in Translation episode, and the other day, we were passing around an amazing piece from the Atavist by the writer Chris Collin, and the story was about a dude whose life read like a movie script, and when we finished reading Chris Collin's piece, we leapt to our feet and insisted that our own Stephanie Fu go out and get the tape. Stephanie, dim the lights, roll tape. Act 1, Scene 1, Backyard in London, 1973. Simon Lewis speaks. I am dead, Horatio. Wretched queen, adieu. The thing that made me first passionate about movies was as a kid, when I was in high school, I wrote and adapted Shakespeare's Macbeth and turned that into an 8 millimeter film. You that look pale and tremble at this chance. A few years later, when Simon left for university, his parents moved to Los Angeles which he thought was perfect. I knew that was my great chance to jump into the movie business. And starting out, I really wanted to make any film that I could. And he really means any film. For example, he produced the notoriously bad Chud 2. Chud 2. This Chud's for you. It was pure Hollywood magic. Simon climbed the Hollywood ranks. Soon he was representing Howie Mandel and John Travolta. That was how I became involved as co-producer of the original Look Who's Talking. Look Who's Talking is a movie about a baby, and the audience can hear all of the baby's thoughts, which are voiced by Bruce Willis. Oh, look, listen, I got something cold and wet in my shorts down here, guys. And I thought that was a magic concept. Not surprisingly, the studio did not agree, but Simon was determined to get this movie made. I was enormously charming and enormously persuasive, and when I met at the studio, I was able to defend every aspect of the picture. The biggest star of 1989 was also the smallest. The studio made over $100 million just from the first picture. Simon's career blew up. He was huge in Hollywood. It was everything I dreamt of. And just when life couldn't get any better, 
he fell in love. I met Marcy. Her infectious love, her love of life, her extraordinary ability to make everybody feel like they were her best friend. She really was everything I could possibly have looked for in a soulmate. Everything was so perfect that you take everything for granted. And it was a mundane moment. We were talking about whether to take a detour before a restaurant. At that moment, a cargo van ran a stop sign of between 70 and 80 miles an hour. Simon's car flew across five lanes of traffic, flipped over a curb, and landed in a garden. And the first paramedics who ran up reported that there were no survivors in the car. When they cut the car apart, they found that that driver, me, still had a pulse. Simon was rushed to Cedars-Sinai Hospital. Most of his bones were broken, and his brain was hemorrhaging so much that blood started trickling out of his ears. His body had swollen to twice its size, but he was lucky. He was alive. Marcy had been killed on impact. Here's Simon's mother. Nobody's ever programmed for this situation. But when you get this call in the middle of the night, I didn't scream, I didn't this, the, just get dressed and go. And then you go into the intensive care and there's a tube coming out of every part of his body. Other people tell you, you know, you, you talk to them, they can hear you, I don't know. Simon was in a Glasgow coma scale three. That's the deepest level of coma there is. And if you're in this for more than a few hours, doctors anticipate severe brain damage. Simon was in the coma for a month. No one, no one that I'm aware of remembers the inside of a Glasgow coma scale three. No one except Simon. I remember the experience of what approaching death felt like. It was a boundless series of infinite vistas you always feel at home because everyone knows your name. In the movies, coming back to life is like floating towards a bright light. But for him, it was a little different. There was a moment when I felt incredibly alone. I still remember it right now. This, the endless blackness that at that moment engulfed me. But when I opened my eyes, if you could imagine a baby being born for the very first time, all I could think about was the beauty of the light at the window. I didn't even know the word for a window. He didn't know who he was. He didn't know how to speak. He had to learn everything again, including who he was and what he had been. The moment when I remember my wife for the first time happened in the middle of the night when a fragment of memory returns to me. Images started to coalesce, and finally, my joy was total. All I could do was whisper with total joy to the night nurse that I, I married, I married to Marcy. The night nurse responded that it was very nice to hear that, and then she called my parents to come in. I went straight down to the hospital, and uh, when I went into the room, I said, Look, Simon, she died in the crash. So he took a photograph out of the drawer. He said, I'm going to say goodbye to her. That was all. The fact that I couldn't move, the fact that I couldn't talk, none of these things troubled me at all. With the loss of my wife, it was really the loss of everything that mattered to me. Slowly, as he acquired language again, Simon started to realize the irony of his situation. It seemed like two of the movies that he had created were coming true in real life. It's strange that I co-produced Look Who's Talking about an infant in thinking before it's even born, and then I went from being the top of my game as a Hollywood filmmaker to being completely dependent and a baby again in an infant stage. And even more ironically, the film that I was producing at the time of the crash was called Mother Night. In Mother Night, a messenger comes to tell a man that because of forces beyond his control, his wife has been killed. The other producers, who finished the film without him, invited Simon to the screening. When I saw the film playing, and there's a scene I'll never forget where Nick Nolte is walking down the sidewalk, and he just stops. He stands there as night falls. What froze me? was the fact that I had absolutely no reason to move in any direction. And when I watched that, I, I, was, I, mean, I, I was in tears, quietly in the dark, because I'd lost my wife and I knew exactly what 
that character was feeling. It was extremely, a terribly sad moment to realize that the film I'd been making had become, in some respects, my own experience. Simon felt that his script had been written, and his ending would not be a happy one. But he hadn't even reached Act 3. After an evening of feeling sorry for himself, Simon woke up and found that he had lost the ability to speak once again. And I realized that things can always get worse. But then I thought, that must mean that they can also always get better. And at that moment, I knew that the survivors never can feel sorry for themselves because it's not fair to the person that doesn't get that chance because I have a second opportunity of life. Simon went through physical therapy and got an experimental surgery that helped him walk again. He learned to read and write and went through cognitive therapy to raise his IQ. It took an incredibly long time before I felt that I was progressing. Over about 16 years, I went through hundreds and hundreds of hours of therapy. I was able, gradually, to inch up my IQ to over 150. Which is considered highly superior intelligence. This is not supposed to happen. Doctors thought it was a miracle, but Simon insists that it was simply tenacity. But there was one thing he couldn't overcome. Simon still has something called flat time. Flat time is the fact that the distant past and the present are the same for me. Basically, Simon remembers what he ate for breakfast today and a conversation he had two months ago, but he couldn't tell you what came first. Not understanding time sometimes makes it hard for Simon to get a narrative, but he missed telling stories. And so he decided to go back into the movie business. The film industry is Darwinian, so if you've been out of the industry, say, for six weeks, that's a long time. If you've been out of the film industry for a year, you really are a forgotten soul. I've been gone from the film industry for 17 years, so there is no precedent for that. But people remembered how Simon Lewis had gotten stuff done 20 years ago. Universal reopened a project he'd been working on back then and gave him a fresh turnaround period. Simon will be co-producing the film if it gets made. And I will be involved in the writing of the storyline. And... Of course, after reading the script, Simon realized that the movie is about what makes us who we are, how we can lose it, and how we come back from that. Again, the movie is about him. But this time, he gets to write the ending. Unlike the world of fiction, in the world of non-fiction, in the real world, where we open our eyes each day and we feel the sun rise and shine, there are choices. Faced with the choice, do I roll over and give up? Or do I go forward? I found reasons to go forward. Well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock I'm gonna pick my baby up And take her to the picture show Simon Lewis wrote a book about his recovery and about consciousness. It's called Rise and Shine. We'll have a link on our site. And awesome. Big thanks to Chris Collins for his wonderful piece in Atavis which led Snap to this story. We'll have a link on snapjudgment.org. The story was produced by Stephanie Fu. And now, as we travel through the Lost in Translation episode, it's important to note that there is no universal language. (laughs) Well, actually, actually, there is a universal language. We can't really talk about that on the radio, on the public radio, if you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) The second closest thing to a universal language is often found inside a clear glass bottle. I'm a returned uh, Peace Corps volunteer. I was overseas in the Republic of Moldova and I was in this small town called Trokia. Everyone had a large farm and a lot of acres. People were incredibly proud of their livestock and especially of their wine and the sort of wine harvest that they did every summer. All the homes are different colors, and it's very sort of fantastic, but they're also almost integrated into the local forest. So there's a degree to which you have to walk through a forest in this community to get to the other side, and there really are no lights. You're pretty much guided during the day by the road and at night by the lights coming from inside people's homes. 
And I got a, a phone call from our city council member, and he had asked me that he wanted me to install his modem. I went over to his home, got the modem, opened up the pages, I installed everything. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I'd like to thank you by sharing a glass of wine with you. And that's a very powerful message. Because in Moldovan culture, wine is incredibly central. It's a time for Moldovans to celebrate, to remember, and also to forget. And so he took me to his basement, and he takes me to the wine room, and he pours that first glass from this huge barrel. And so we're drinking, and we got to our third and our fourth glass, and he's describing his achievements in life. And so he finishes after the sixth glass of wine, and I'm right there with him, and he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, you know what, I really like you, I want to take you to the second room. And I look at him, and I'm like, the second room? And he says, yeah, the cognac room. Well, now he's drinking to forget, and I'm trying to stay there with him. I'm trying to keep up with the shots of cognac, but he's describing, he's describing forgetting about the Soviet Union, forgetting about his experience of just being in a gulag and forgetting about what happened to his family under the Soviet Union. And he said, this is really great. I love talking to you. I want to take you to the vodka room. And I can barely remember what he was saying in that third room. And I am just trying to keep the glass steady, focusing on it, nodding. And he's clearly really happy with this friendship. And he's essentially spilling his guts about his life. And I can't remember two-thirds of it. All I do remember is that he takes me by the shoulder again. He takes a bottle of his own red house wine. And he says, I want you to have this. This is my favorite house wine. He says, this is my favorite grape. And this is the one that I personally made with my own two hands. And I'm just, I'm really honored. And I realize I first probably have to make it home. And I walk out of the building and I realize it's nighttime and there are no lights. At this point, I don't have anything valuable on me except this red wine. And I think to myself, you know, hopefully nothing's going to happen. But I hear in the distance footsteps. And the footsteps are starting to quicken in pace. And then it sounds like they're running at me. And I turn around and I see this person running at me. It's a shadow. I can't tell how big they are. All I know is that someone is running directly at me. And at that point, the adrenaline hits my bloodstream. And all I can think is two weeks from now, my safety and security officer is going to look at future volunteers saying, hey, this is a picture of Alex after he got killed in the middle of the night, because this person probably thinks I have something on me. They're going to stab me. Who knows what is going to happen? And I decide I'm not going to have that happen. And I just start running. And the first thing I do is I take a beeline to the left, which is another gravel road, and I'm running by all of these homes. And this guy, is, he keeps up with me. He's just there. Every step I take, he's just countering with every step he takes. And I figure, all right, I know what I'm going to do now. And you think the logical person would go to a police station or run into one of those homes that I'm running by? No. The first thing I decide to do is I'm going to run through the woods. And now this is sort of those, you know, classic Eastern European... Transylvanian kind of woods and it's completely foggy and I'm thinking to myself I'm gonna outrun him and I'm running as fast as I can I'm zigging and I'm zagging and then he's zigging and then he's zagging and then suddenly boom I hit the river that cuts through the forest and I'm knee deep in this river there's mud everywhere and the first thing that pops to my mind is you just ruined my pants. Do you know how long and how hard it is to actually hand wash your pants in Eastern Europe? And I turn around and I scream, you ruined my pants. And the guy freezes. And he turns around and he starts running away. And inexplicably, I just decide to start running after him. And we're running. We're almost at the edge of the forest again. And I knock him down. I'm like, what are you doing? And he turns around and he starts screaming, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. And I say, but you were chasing me. And he looks at me and he says, I thought you were going to the wedding. And I stop. And he says, well, you've got a bottle of wine in your hand and you're probably going to give it as a gift. And I thought you knew where you were going. So I help the guy up. I look at him and I say, hey, do you want to share this bottle of wine and I'm going to help you find that wedding? The guy laughs. We open up the wine. We're walking through the woods. So he tells me that his cousin's getting married in the chapel in our city of Trochia. And we've gotten halfway through the wine. And I point to my right and say, hey, it's that way. Alexander Labanov 
was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Republic of Moldova for two years. He still has a soft spot for any wine from the Moldovan harvest. Thank you for sharing your story with The Snap. It was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Renzo Gorio. Now, of course, of course, if you were chasing drunks down the street of your hometown and you think it would make a great story, let us know. Snapjudgment.org. And when we return, we're going to learn a new language and find out what can happen when you know how to shake it just so. In just a moment, when Snap Judgment continues. Snap Judgment, the loss in translation episode. Now, there are lots of reasons why you can't understand what someone else is saying. Snap Judgment's own Jamie DeWolf takes us back in time to a Sunday morning when he didn't quite get the gist of what was going on. Growing up suburban Baptist in Humboldt County, I was first baptized in Bermuda swimming trunks in a tub they used to bob for apples on the weekends. The preacher pulled me up, slapped me on the back and said, now I was past Sunday school. Now I was in the full church service and got to see what happened once the kids were ushered out to draw crucifixions and crayons. I shined my shoes, straightened my clip-on tie and had my picture Bible tucked under my seat. In those days, God was a bigger action hero than Batman. God was the big brother I never had, with a voice that could shatter stone and muscles so big they wrapped around the world. I knew if I had God on my side, any bully would get a lot more than a beat down. They'd get goddamned. And today, I was finally out of the Kids for Christ squad and up to the big leagues. I was going to be a parishioner. We're talking about Jesus. That church ceremony, I was singing as hard as my prepubescent falsetto would allow, while all the hands raised up around me like we were all under arrest to the sky. They excused all the kids to Sunday school, and the preacher's voice got real low. And he told us, if you listened hard enough, you could hear the four horsemen galloping towards us on the horizon. The end times were coming quicker than Christmas. The adults around me quivered and shook their heads as coins jingled into the offering plate. The air conditioner was broken that day, and grandmothers wiped mascara into their sweat. The band did a drum roll as wallets were put away. Then we all rose to our feet for the worship part of the program. Now our church wasn't known for dancing, but they certainly tried. I clapped louder than everyone else around me until my palms stung and made sure my mom noticed. We all swayed from side to side, hands up, like a wave that never broke. The preacher invoked the host of angels, reached up to the skylight, and asked for a message from God to tell to his believers. The church was quiet, with only a D-flat from the pipe organ rolling under the reverential silence. Give us your word, Lord, the preacher invoked. Speak through me! Suddenly, two rows away, Grandmother Mabel rose up in her yellow sunflower dress, her eyes rolling backwards, her hands held up like spasming fish. The whole church went silent, and her voice rang out. The 
whole church said, mmm, nodding their heads in understanding. I never heard words like that before, not even in cartoons. I tugged at my mom's sleeve. What is she saying? That's the language of heaven, my mother whispered. Wow, God is a ventriloquist. Grandmother Mabel sat back down, coming out of a trance. Her eyes rolled back. She dabbed at her wet lipstick with the napkin. For the rest of the service, I couldn't stop staring at her. I knew demons could possess you and could spin your head sideways, but to become God's microphone? That was way more badass than memorizing all of Psalms or winning at Bible bingo. I wanted to be God's secret decoder ring. That day, I began my training in tongues. I primed my spirit. I sent all my allowance that week to missionaries who claimed to cure cannibalism in the Congo. I passed out pamphlets and Armageddon in front of Goodwill. I did the alphabet, forward and backward, then sideways, and practiced my stance. How I'd rise in the pews in a trance, in one smooth, fluid motion. How to roll my eyes back until there was nothing left but white. This Sunday, my mom said, we're going to a new church. Wear your best suit. So I wore my lucky Stegosaurus t-shirt underneath my dress suit. I took communion with shaky hands. The church organ slid into a low bass that rumbled underneath our feet. Sweat trickled into my socks. The preacher turned his pale face to the cross. Dear Lord, Holy Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we ask to hear you, Lord. We ask, I jumped up and belted out, Habity, habity, hibity, habity, rabbity, dibbity, bidabida, make it like a high, make a hot a hoe, yabba dabba doo wop, skibbity bop, shazam! My mother yanked me hard down on the pew. What are you doing? Speaking in tongues, Mom. It's not that kind of church. I sunk in my seat, praying for the Lord to give me an emergency exit into the afterlife. Instead, I stayed sweating in the pews, looking dressed for my own funeral. When the church service ended, my mother was as silent as an unread book. That day, I learned God can speak in many languages, but sometimes it's best to bite your tongue. If you walk with Jesus, He's gonna save your soul. You gotta keep the devil Torn, straight from the life of Jamie the Wolf, ladies and gentlemen. That is what living does to you. It gives you stories you can tell on the radio. It does. That piece was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. And now, there are lots of reasons why people don't understand where you're coming from. One of the most common is because you're lying to them. And yes, sometimes, even the tiniest of little bitty white lies have the power to tear things asunder. Michelle Joyce, just starting out in the big world of belly dance, got an email inviting her to perform at a New Year's show in Central India. I knew really nothing about what I was getting into. I just knew that I was supposed to bring a couple of costumes and a CD. When I landed in Delhi to transfer, I met the agent who had emailed me. He said, and by the way, I told them that you won Belly Dancer of the Universe. So if they ask you about that, just say it's true. Belly Dancer of the Universe is this competition I'd never even attended. I mean, I understand he wanted to inflate my value. I felt a little bit uncomfortable, but I didn't realize it was going to be a big deal. He puts me on the next plane, and I arrive at the indoor airport, and I step off the plane, and it's kind of a media circus. There are photographers, videographers, this man in a suit runs up to me and hands me flowers, and then he snatches them back and says, when you accept the flowers, look into the camera and smile. So the next day, I look at the newspaper and I see the picture of myself and below it, it says, Miss Universe arrives to do a belly dance performance. 
So the belly dancer of the universe thing, which was a lie already, became Miss Universe. I was kind of having an internal debate. Do I correct everyone and have this sort of embarrassing moment? Or do I just bask in the limelight? So I I just kind of went for it. I am Miss Universe. I was doing live interviews. What's up? What are you going to wear for the big show and stuff like that? They could have just seen my website, which had my actual resume on it, which is like dances Friday and Saturday nights at Bob's Kebab House or whatever. So everything's going great. I'm doing all these interviews with the media. I'm having the time of my life being Miss Universe. Then I check my email and my husband had sent me this email entitled Hindu Extremist Issue Threat Against Belly Dance Show. This extremist group had actually issued a threat against all New Year's shows because New Year's is not a traditionally Indian holiday and they're against the westernization of India. They specifically named my show and it turns out that they are responsible for literally thousands of deaths in riots over the last decade or so. Hmm, that's weird. I haven't heard anything about this. So I printed out the email and immediately found the owner of the hotel. And he said, ah, no problem, don't worry, we have tight security, these guys are just wanting media attention. I emailed my husband back and I said, well, the hotel doesn't seem very concerned about it. And then uh, the day of the show came, I had about 10 bodyguards surrounding me. And before I went on, I heard this sort of ruckus in the background. There are a bunch of car horns honking rhythmically. And then when they get a little closer, I hear that they're chanting. I'm in my little tent behind the stage. And then I heard the sound of glass breaking and people yelling and and it's getting closer. And then the MC steps out on stage, announces me and my music starts. They just kind of shove me out on stage and there are thousands of people in the audience. The show is televised live throughout all of India. And I'm dancing and there are flash bulbs going off everywhere and I was kind of playing with them. I did the little like hand up to the ear, I can't hear you. And I'd do a little shimmy and they'd be like, yeah, and they're yelling my name. It was just, I was having a really good time. The show finished. As soon as I step off stage, security surrounds me. They look really tense. I've done a little bit of traveling and my motto is don't freak out unless the locals are freaking out. These security guys looked scared and panicky. No one would tell me what's going on, and I'm asking, and they deposit me back in my hotel room, and I have two bodyguards at the door for the rest of the night. So I wake up in the morning, and I open up the hotel room door. There's a stack of newspapers outside. I'm on the front page of every single one of them. There is a picture of me on stage next to a picture of the thrashed hotel next to a picture of an angry mob. And I go down to the lobby... It's a complete mess. The front windows have been completely punched out, and there's blue paint all over the place. Cars had broken windows, and it looked like there had been a riot. I saw footage of the front of the hotel, and the rioters had actually fought their way into the lobby. And cooks came out of the kitchen with knives. Busboys were waving sticks around, trying to just hold the line and keep these rioters out of the hotel. This show started off being me as Miss Universe, which was a huge deal, which is what probably originally attracted this attention. And so there were a couple of journalists who wanted to talk to me. And these like weren't the journalists from before. These guys looked a little crusty and serious. So you won Belly Dancer of the Universe. Oh, you thought I won Belly Dancer of the Universe. No, no, no. I'm Miss Universe of Belly Dance. People get that confused all the time. No, no, no. It's so obvious that I'm lying. So I got out of town. I felt kind of guilty that these poor people were going to have to pay to fix this giant mess. And probably it all happened because of a lie that I was perpetuating. 
As I was leaving for the airport, I thanked the owner of the hotel for keeping me safe. He just was like, yes, yes, you're welcome. Goodbye. Get out. Now, Michelle originally submitted backstory on her website, as you should too, Snappers. Perhaps you'll end up on the air just like Michelle. It was produced by Anna Sussman. Now, don't you fret. Do not frown. There's more Snap Universe left to explore right where this came from. Full episodes, movies, pictures, music, it's all there, Snappers. Snapjudgment.org. You can leave your own stories, make fun of others who've done the same thing, and it's all good. Facebook, Twitter, we got that. Hit us up. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the rowdiest roadsters in Rottingham. He needs no introduction, so I won't give him one. The Uber producer, Mr. Mark Mistich. Anna Sussman speaks the language. Stephanie Fu spoke it as a child. Jamie DeWolf learned to speak in church. Rita Daniels refuses to speak. Willer Bina doesn't know what we're speaking about. Pat Masidi Miller only speaks when spoken to. And Renzo Gorio, he speaks words that are not appropriate for NPR. If you happen to see someone talking about how the Linux operating system is superior to Windows-based and OS platforms, don't worry. That's just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting blowing off some steam. You know, just smile and nod. Smile and nod. Back away slowly. Youth speaks because the next generation can speak for itself. Youth speaks to the ORG. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public and public media right where the public belongs. PRX.org. And even though this is not the news, this is not the news. In fact, there could be this guy you hate. This guy you've hated ever since you roomed together 15 years ago and you swore was the most loathsome pustule ever to have slithered from a swamp. You could get an invitation to his wedding ceremony in Hawaii. Discover he's asking you to be his best man. The trip is expenses paid because he's an internet bazillionaire now. You could write that guy and tell him and tell him and tell him that, yeah, yeah, well, you'd be honored to perform his ceremony in Maui. You could do all that, snappers, and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. Oh.